Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, have people, have investigators found pieces of an intergalactic spaceship? We are going to check in once again with Dr. Avi Loeb after a controversial expedition gathering pieces of a fireball that crashed into the ocean off the coast of Papua New Guinea. The fireball, not your typical meteorite, are what are the chances that its origins were interstellar? Well, joining me now is Dr. Avi Loeb, Frank B. Baird Jr professor of science, director of the Institute for Theory and Computation at the Center for Astrophysics and director of the Galileo Project at Harvard University. Thank you so much for being with us once again. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. What is the update here as far as I know? We've we've talked to you about this before and there, there has been so much written about this discovery and the origins of this discovery. Where do things stand right now? Yeah, so originally we looked at about a tenth of all the uh, molten droplets from the object that uh, were produced when uh, it melted uh, as a result of the fireball uh, that it created while passing through air. And uh, we had altogether 750 such molten droplets, spherules, uh, and uh, by now we are going over uh, the entire sample. And um, and so we have uh, uh, the full uh, census of those uh, special uh, droplets that came from the object that we believe are of extrasolar origin because they have a composition that is that was never seen in the solar system not on rocks on on earth uh, the moon mars or asteroids uh, the other thing is that a few weeks ago there was a claim that maybe our spherules are coal ash some people suggested that without having any access to the materials without doing any analysis they just said maybe it's coal ash and we looked into that uh, we checked uh, 60 elements in the periodic table and um, we can demonstrate uh, beyond any reasonable doubt that it's not coal ash it doesn't match uh, the fingerprints of coal ash so it's uh, definitely something else uh, and you know, with respect to your um, uh, question of, as to whether it's uh, uh, relics of a spacecraft that was sent by another civilization or a natural rock uh, from another star, for that we need bigger pieces. Uh, um, and we are planning to get them in a future expedition, hopefully next summer. And when you talk about the spherules, what exactly do they look like? And when you say that, that you need bigger pieces, how big are the pieces that you're dealing with now? Right now, they are uh, smaller than a grain of sand, less than a millimeter in diameter. Uh, the biggest one we have is 1.3 millimeters. Uh, and uh, from that, you know, we can only infer the composition of the surface of the object when it melted. Uh, but if we can get uh, a piece uh, of order a centimeter, an inch or bigger, 
then we can not only infer the composition, but also tell whether it was a rock or some technological gadget. Uh, just think about melting uh, semiconductors or computer screens. Uh, you would get some droplets that have an unusual abundance of elements uh, with uh, much more rare elements than you find in a rock. But you won't be able to conclusively say that it is uh, related to some uh, technological gadget. And so for that, if you get a piece of a, of a broken uh, computer screen, then you can do that. You can tell, uh, especially if it's a big piece that has uh, buttons on it. Of course, then you would obviously know that. And this discovery then, the debris discovered back in 2014, are you closer then, do you think, to getting those answers? Or, or how has that journey kind of been since the discovery? Yeah, so um, first the U.S. Space Command uh, confirmed in an official letter to NASA that this object indeed uh, had a very high speed and came from outside the solar system. They looked back at their data and concluded that about a year ago. Then we went to the expedition, collected materials, these droplets, these spherules, and it looks like there is a special type of spherules along the meteor path that uh, are potentially of extrasolar origin. And the next step would be to go there. Now we know exactly where to look and uh, to find bigger pieces. And then we can say uh, with more confidence whether it was a rock from another star or maybe some technological gadget. And, you know, if we find a piece of a gadget and it has buttons on it, the question is, should we press a button? Hmm. And, And how would you answer that? Yeah, so in fact, I asked my students in a class, uh, and uh, half of the class said, uh, no, please don't press any button because it will affect all of us. And uh, the second half of the class said, uh, please do, we would like to know what would happen. Maybe it's a chat GPT-100. Uh, and then one of the students asked me, Professor Loeb, what would you actually do? And I said, I will bring it to a laboratory and examine it before engaging with it. Uh, there have been some critics of, of your discovery or, or some, I guess, who don't believe that, that this is something extraterrestrial or from perhaps a, a, a somewhere else or, or uh, don't, don't kind of follow the same path that you're following. What do you say to people who are critical of this? Well, I say that uh, science is all about evidence. And, you know, it's a lot of work to collect evidence, analyze it. We are doing this work. Um, So these people who make comments, they are just like spectators looking at a soccer match and, you know, telling the players how to pass the ball. Uh, It's not their business. Uh, I mean, they can potentially help the analysis, you know, participate in the work we are doing constructively. But instead, there is this tendency of negativity, of uh, basically uh, saying negative things uh, just because they are not part of the process. Um, However, you know, in science, it's all about evidence. I'm uh, determined to get the evidence and figure it out the way science should be done. And uh, everyone will know about the results. We will put them in a scientific paper that will be accessible to the public. And uh, hopefully we'll know more about whether we have a neighbor, uh, whether we have a partner out there uh, that uh, we can learn from. You've talked, I know, in the past as well about funding and more specifically underfunding of this field. Do you think that's part of the reason or is that stopping more discoveries or learning more about discoveries like this? 
Yeah, I do believe that, um, you know, we allocate uh, $10 billion to the biggest science projects like uh, the Webb Telescope or the Large Hadron Collider. But but if we were to allocate about 1% of those budgets, uh, just $100 million, we can make a lot of progress on this front. And this is a question that uh, the public cares a lot about. Are we alone or do we have a partner out there? And uh, also government cares about because they're discussing uh, right now uh, uh, the question of uh, whether, you know, what are these unidentified anomalous phenomena? And uh, I hope that uh, scientists like myself would be able to answer these questions. What is it that draws you to this field and, and trying to answer that question of, of are we alone? Well, it's the fact that, um, you know, this is the most consequential uh, question that it will put us uh, uh, in a, a different place uh, because uh, it could uh, provide us with inspiration to do better. Right now, we're investing $2 trillion a year in military budgets worldwide. And if we were to allocate the same amount of money for space exploration, we could send a CubeSat towards every star in the Milky Way galaxy, you know, within this century. And uh, it will perhaps convince us that, uh, you know, that we have a partner out there. It will give a meaning to our existence, just like the way you find a partner in your private life. And uh, it will inspire us to work together, perhaps, as equal members of the human species. Well, it is very interesting research and uh, interesting discoveries. Dr. Loeb, we'll leave it there for this morning, but thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. That is Dr. Avi Loeb, Frank B. Baird, Jr., Professor of Science, Director of the Institute for Theory and Computation at the Center for Astrophysics and Director of the Galileo Project at Harvard University. This is Mornings with Simi. 637. That means it's time for The View from Victoria with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. And this parkboard thing, <laughs> sitting here as a spectator on the sidelines, this is one fascinating issue. It's not necessarily <laughs> developing the way the mayor hoped. No, but he had to know there was going to be a lot of reaction, both positive and negative, to a bold move, the uh, move that he put forward. Well, yes and no. I mean, if he really thought it through and realized there was going to be significant opposition from former commissioners and people who don't like to see government grow in the direction of getting smaller and all that, uh, he should have thought about the timetable. Because look, the mayor has the votes on council to push this ahead. It's not up to the park board to make this decision, but the mayor needs help. The, he needs an amendment to provincial legislation. The Vancouver Charter is actually a provincial law. And to abolish the park board, the mayor needs the provincial government to bring in a law, amend the law, and the legislature is not sitting right now. It won't be sitting until February. And uh, 2024 is an election year, and the New Democrats will have their own agenda for that legislature sitting. And the last thing they want is some festering, troublesome, divisive issue involving a municipality. Jill, they've already got one of those with Surrey. They don't need another one. 
No, not very, very true. Although I did get the impression when Ken Sim came on this program, uh, he did say he'd already been in discussions yep. with the province, with the premier. And, and I asked him, well, so are you sure you've already been given the assurance that this is going to be this is going to be OK? Do you have their support? And I mean, I, I not that you would come out and say, oh, no, we don't have their support at all. But it seemed like he did have he, he, he wasn't worried about it. He wasn't worried. Uh, the New Democrats want to work with Ken Sim. They've had a good relationship with him, much better than they had with Kennedy Stewart, who was an actual New Democrat. So I think that's all true. But I would be surprised if the provincial government gave it to him ironclad in black and white. Uh, they, I am sure the New Democrats are watching what happened at the park board last night, and they're going... How far is this opposition going to go? Is it going to take off? Are they actually going to be able to organize a public opposition to the mayor, make it a big showdown, dump it into the provincial government's lap when the House sits next February? And I think that's where the question in the back of the mind of the New Democrats is, is this thing going to turn into Surrey? Is it going to turn into a civic election where initially we go along with the mayor because that's what he wants, and after all, he's the mayor, and then the mayor can't get it done. Uh, it gets turned into a big festering showdown, and the provincial government is under pressure to, well, don't just rubber stamp this. Uh, why don't you insist on a referendum in Vancouver, which would be, you know, political Take, it would take it off the provincial government desk. Why don't you ask? I think this is a great question. The mayor claims this is going to save staggering amounts of money. I, I stand to be persuaded on that. You're going to get rid of a few elected park commissioners, but I don't see you're necessarily going to... You might reduce the amount of paperwork, but I don't see where you're going to save millions. So, uh, yeah, I think the provincial government's inclination initially, I'm sure it was as the mayor relayed it, which was, hey, you want this? Yeah, okay, well, you know... Uh, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, look at it for the spring session. But if this thing turns into the kind of showdown we saw last night mm. at the park board, all bets are off whether or not the provincial government will go along with this. And the strategists may say, why didn't the mayor thought this was going to be trouble, Jill? Why didn't he wait mm -hmm. to announce this and ask for it in January when there'd be less time for the opposition to organize? I mean... You know, the holiday season's coming up, so that may take a bit of the edge off of it. But, yeah, you've got plenty of time. Uh, and, you know, the legislature session doesn't start till the middle of February. And, again, the provincial government has already, Jill, reduced the length of that session by two weeks. It's only going to sit for 10 weeks because the New Democrats have their eye on an election. They have an eye on a happy pre-election agenda. They do not want some kind of nasty festering issue from the city of Vancouver distracting attention from their happy agenda in an election year. And also the the kind of the optics, like you said, we saw the showdown last night with the board, the, the former now ABC commissioners who aren't behind this, who said they felt kind of blindsided by it. What is this board going to do now until, so like you say, February is the earliest that the province is going to deal with it. If they deal with it at that point, what is the board supposed yeah. to be doing in the meantime? Well, yes, uh, that's one thing. I mean, uh, the, 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 
Park Board has a lot of answering to do. I'm not impressed with them. I, uh, like I think a lot of people have uh, been asking, why do we even need an elected Park Board? And the record on things isn't great. But uh, there they are. And some of them have nothing better to do than, as you point out, Jill, uh, make a fuss over this thing. Uh, I noticed that uh, we've already had on social media one former member of the board, Spencer Chandra Herbert, who's an NDP MLA now, uh, expressing some sympathy for the idea of an elected park board. He was on the park board himself. And uh, some of the commissioners and ex-commissioners that are coming forward on this issue, they're not with Ken Sims' party. They're with, you know, civic parties that in the past were on the left and aligned with the NDP. So, you know, those people have the ability to organize and lean on this. And they're all, uh, Jill, thinking ahead to the next a round of civic elections and thinking, hmm, this might be a good issue around which to organize opposition to Ken Sim and make him like Kennedy Stewart, a one-term mayor. Hmm. Well, and, and who would have thought this would all come <laughs> about because of the park board, because of this this uh, elected body that's uh, a bit, uh, this unique elected body? Yeah, if you had a way of doing this, overnight with your council majority and get it done and push it into the past, then it makes sense politically. But if it's going to drag on and on and give pause to the NDP government about whether or not it wants to be uh, a partner in doing this, uh, all bets are off. And I already think there's some people out there looking at what happened last night and say, oh, it was just a flash in the pan, you know, one blow up and people will move on. And they'll forget it, uh, like they forget what happened with the Stanley Park train. Uh, well, there's the problem. You know, going forward, if it's still around as an issue when the House sits next February, I think the New Democrats, particularly the political strategists in the Premier's office, are going to be, remind me again why we're doing this for Ken Sim, who isn't even in our political party. Hmm. Well, uh, it's uh, certainly not the end of the fireworks over that one. Well, let's continue now with the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer with The View from Victoria. And Vaughn, we're talking about, uh, well, a bit of a throwback, it seems. Hard to believe we're saying that, but a COVID and respiratory briefing. Yeah, COVID respiratory briefing, Dr. Bonnie Henry, Adrian Dix, old time's sake. They're getting the band back together again to discuss respiratory season you know, I, I attended almost 300 of those Oof. briefings during the pandemic. But one thing is you always find, you always heard something you didn't know and you learned a lot. They're very content heavy. And in general, the message you got was uh, need to be cautious, need to be careful, um, and some good news and some bad news. And that was the theme yesterday, uh, some good news. Uh, we had a peak uh, of COVID back in October um, number of COVID cases in hospitals dropping off. Cases are dropping off, but due diligence still needed. RSV is out there, and uh, we appear to be heading for a pretty rough flu season, and that doesn't peak uh, until a month or two from now. So lots to think about, lots to learn. And again, I, I say I always come away from these things and go, geez, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Ask me about the connection between bird flu. And this. Oh. So uh, this was one of the things, as I said, you always learn something. So Dr. Henry, in the middle of the briefing, says, you know, we got this problem with avian bird flu. And she says, uh, anybody who has any contact with poultry or like you're working on a poultry farm, you're raising chickens, ducks, whatever, 
you need to get vaccinated <clears throat> because here's the concern. If you get viruses swapping back and forth between birds and people or any kind of wildlife and people, you can get mutations. And of course, there's a lot of science to suggest that was one of the factors in some of the flu viruses we've had over the years. So she, along with telling everybody else to get vaccinated, she said, special message out there for anyone in uh, poultry or farming or who has contact, get vaccinated because you do not want to be the carrier for a mutation that turns into a pandemic. That seems like it should get more attention, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah no, I, I mean, th these things go on for a long time, you know, and, and you go, I mean, some people I think are, are taking it fairly blasé now. You know, mm -hmm. it's like that era is behind us and let's move on to another storyline. Uh, to some degree in British Columbia, we can, I don't think complacent is the right attitude, but we can say, yes, we're doing better. Uh, for example, our vaccination rate, we are told, Jill, is double that of Ontario. Now, there's still a significant number of British Columbians who aren't vaccinated. And I think the two things to think about that came through on the briefing yesterday was, first of all, holiday season is coming up. People are getting together. That is the vehicle and the forum for spreading flu, RSV, and COVID. So think about that. And as Dr. Henry said, just because you don't feel threatened, by COVID. Maybe you've already had a mild case and it was mild. She said, my mild case of COVID is not necessarily somebody else's. Seniors, the vulnerable, immunocompromised people, all, and many people have those in their family. Uh, you need to think about them just because you may get a mild case and, and pass it on. It may not be mild for them. And the other thing she said was she talked about young people that you know, uh, some of these viruses hit young people pretty hard. We're vaccinating infants from six months and up. And little children, uh, young people, uh, it, it, it breaks the assumption that, you know, these viruses just ravage people the older they get. Some of them do. Some of them hit young people pretty hard. So lots to think about there. Uh, as I said, you know, we can... Uh, we can debate the future of this. Um, last question, I think, uh, Jill, was how long are we going to be living with this? And Dr. Henry said, honestly, we don't actually know yet what the arc for COVID is. We know flu comes every year and it's different every year. We don't really know what COVID is going to settle into. But for now, you should be thinking about getting vaccinated, think about getting boosters. It does ensure that if you get it, and many people do, uh, it'll be a mild case, more likely to be a mild case. You need to think about as well, who might I be passing it on to? And are they in as good health as I am? Yeah, and it's an interesting well, when you say that too about looking at young people in different groups because that's always been the messaging about flu and people seem to be okay with that. It seems though with COVID, there, there's a bit yeah. more people are tend to get the, their backs up sometimes a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, you can, you know, she said it yesterday. She said some young people can get this pretty severe. It can be a very severe case. And, and again, that, that sounds counterintuitive. As always, BC Center for Disease Control website has 
uh, a lot of information for anybody who wants to look at it, who wants to think at it, who has specific questions. Uh, I Usually they post a summary of the material they gave to the news media yesterday. But um, again, there are uh, frequently asked questions and places you can contact. And I think really what just came through was we've gotten where we are today, which is one of the highest vaccination rates in North America in British Columbia. We've gotten to where we are with comparably good statistics on COVID and flu. Our hospitals right now are not overwhelmed, although they're crowded. And so think about, you know, getting vaccinated and uh, you really need a very good reason not to be, because even if it doesn't seem to threaten you, unless you're having zero contract with contact with the rest of the human race, you might want to think about getting vaccinated just so you're less risk of passing on a bad case to somebody else. All right, Vaughn, thank you so much. We'll check in with bye you bye. again tomorrow. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, time to talk a little bit more about the price of groceries. And according to the president and CEO of Metro, Eric LaFleche says all major industry players need to sign on to the grocery code of conduct in order for it to be a success. He was speaking to MPs yesterday at a House of Commons Agriculture Committee meeting on stabilizing food prices. Now, he said Metro is willing to sign the code of conduct as it is currently drafted. Not so, though, from other executives. We've already heard from executives with Walmart Canada and Loblaws telling the committee they won't sign the code in its current form, saying they're actually concerned if they do, this could raise prices for consumers. So what happens next? Joining me to talk more about grocery prices and what is happening with the code of conduct is Alistair McGregor, the New Democrat critic of agriculture and food price inflation. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much, and good morning to you and your listeners. Good morning. Where do things stand then as far as coming up with a code of conduct with the main goal, stabilizing or even lowering food prices? Yeah, I think your intro said it perfectly. Uh, We currently have two holdouts. Uh, Walmart and Loblaw companies are are the big holdouts and discussions on a grocery code of conduct. And I think it's important to understand, like, why this conversation is going on. You know, for so many years, all of the primary producers, the suppliers, the food manufacturers, um, they've been dealing with a retail market that is controlled by just five companies. And because of that market dominance and power, uh, often those retail grocers have been able to impose hidden fees and fines on suppliers. And so there's been a huge power imbalance for, for many of our farmers and food manufacturers. So by putting in a code, uh, the ultimate goal is to put in a level of transparency and trust for all players in the food supply chain. Uh, There was hope that this would be a voluntary code, and it's something that's been worked on for several years. But to have uh, both Loblaw and Walmart now express that they're going to step out of it is a very unfortunate setback. And it may, in fact, uh, force provincial and federal government's hands to make it a mandatory code because... There's just simply no way the code could be effective with those two big players uh, sitting out on the sidelines. What would the code actually do, though, when we're talking about consumers and the price of food? How would the code actually benefit consumers? Well, you have to understand that, like, you know, for food manufacturers, um, they, you know, yes, everyone knows the big players like, you know, Pepsi and Coca-Cola and General Mills. 
But actually, most of the Canadian market is made up of small to medium producers. Those are, you know, in the Fraser Valley, you would have many, many different companies that are operating. Uh, there's a huge power imbalance when they're trying to get their products on grocery retail shelves. And often, they just don't have the resources to fight the, the power that the grocery retailers have. So by putting in uh, a transparent code so that everyone understands the rules that, you know, you're getting away from those hidden fees, I think anytime you put in transparency into the system uh, so that everyone can see, you know, how costs are being levied, I think ultimately that's going to be good for the consumer because, again, you know, there are all kinds of costs put onto food along the way. And I would argue that because, you know, 80% of our grocery market is dominated by just five companies, we need to sort of reset the pendulum so that consumers on one side are getting a little bit more of a fair advantage, but also the people who are trying to put their products on store shelves are also getting that fairness. Uh, what do you say, though, to uh, the comments from Galen Weston uh, when he spoke to the committee saying that this would actually make it so grocers couldn't uh, hold suppliers accountable if they needed to and that it would actually do nothing to bring down grocery prices? Well, you know, that's funny that he would mention that because we also heard from members of the industry working group who is working on the code. And they said uh, in a submission to the committee that contrary to Loblaw's claimed concerns, there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that the the code will raise food prices or negatively impact the ability of retailers to meet consumer demand. So I think uh, what you heard from Galen Weston is someone who's looking out for the interests of Loblaw, not necessarily for the interests of the greater public. The fact that, you know, three of his other competitors have said that they will sign on to the code and that they think it's a good thing, I think could put some strong doubt into any claims you're hearing from Galen Weston. So what happens at this point then where it seems like we're at a bit of an impasse with some saying, yes, we would sign this code. The other grocers saying, absolutely not. We're not going to sign it the way it is now. It would need to have some pretty significant changes for us to sign on. What happens at this point? Uh, That's a great question. I mean, that's something we definitely want to keep on the ministers about. It, It may ultimately, as I said before, force government hands to step in. Because I don't think you could have a viable system in place with both Loblaw and Walmart sitting on the sideline. And it would be patently unfair to the other companies who have made great efforts to sign on to the code. I mean, ultimately, you know, we, we want to get to a place where there's more transparency in the system. We know that there's important legislation uh, going through the House of Commons right now. It's in fact, just passed third reading yesterday to give more power to the Competition Bureau and strengthen our competition laws because I think ultimately, you know, our system lacks uh, a, a competition, which we ultimately want to have in place to, to lower food prices. Uh, profits have been going pretty well for these companies for a long time, and I think it's time for us as policymakers to try and swing the pendulum back in the favour of consumers who for about two years now have been watching food price inflation just go completely out of control. Well, we will uh, continue to watch and see what happens with this. Alistair McGregor, thanks so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for your interest. That is Alistair McGregor, the NDP critic of agriculture and food price inflation. Again, talking about a potential grocer's code of conduct. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, there tends to be a difference of opinion when you talk about homework, especially if you're asking parents, is it beneficial or are children getting too much? Well, our show contributor, Scott Schantz, spoke with a registered psychotherapist who specializes in parenting to find out more about this. Take a listen. Well, everybody's different. You know, we can't expect all kids to react the same way. And I think what you're getting at is is exactly what I wanted to get in when I talk about this, is that there are different kinds of homework problems. They're not, there isn't just sort of a one-size-fits-all. And I think if a parent's going to be more effective at dealing with their, their own child's um, challenges with homework, they have to really understand what kind of problem they're having. So I thought I'd break it down for you and give you some things to think about. Um, one of the questions I like to ask is, what might be the goal that the child's trying to reach when they aren't doing their homework? Like, where are they heading with it? And that kind of leads us into thinking about the type of problem we might be having. For example, if a child will do their homework, but they'll only do it when you sit down with them, and you have to stay right next to them, do every problem with them, and Every time you stand up and walk away, they get lost until you come back and focus them again. I I would think that that type of problem, in a sense, is the easiest one to solve because it seems that the child has just become very dependent on their parent and looking for a lot of attention and help with it. And if we think about the goal of homework, what is it really trying to teach our child Um, essentially it's a responsibility and we're trying to help the child learn how to handle that responsibility independently. That doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play, but it is our child's responsibility, not ours. And and I do think that that's one of the problems when we're um, trying to figure out how do I deal with this because the teachers are giving us notes and telling us what we need to do with our child. And parents generally feel that it is their responsibility to get the homework done. I I tend to throw that back at parents and say, whose responsibility do you really think it is? Is it yours or is it your child? So in that situation, I tend to say to parents that you need to back off. Be available, be around in case they need clarification, but not to sit right next to them and do it side by side. That, that might be sending a problematic message for them. I get totally what you're saying, that there are these so many different uh, issues wrapped up in, in this one. Is there a line where you can say, like, okay, enough is enough. We're not going to force this anymore. So, so that, that's a really separate kind of problem where you're in the power struggle, where you're trying to make somebody do something and they're pushing back and saying, you're not going to be the boss over me. You're not going to make me do it. And they can, they can push back and fight that and delay it and delay tactics and I'm not going to do it and they can stretch it out for hours and it can be so frustrating. The parents can get so angry and frustrated and really be feeling that it's my job to make you do this. They have to do this. But, but as you just said, I mean, it, it can escalate. Start to feel like our relationship with each other is now being strained because of this homework problem. And the more that that happens, I think parents start to get more angry 
and may use things like threats, you know, to get it done or even, you know, yelling and things like that. And kids and the parents end up feeling bad about it. So I think in that situation, it's really a good idea to sort of regroup and reset where you're at with it and recognize that there's a difference between saying it's my job to make sure it's done versus it's my job to sort of set the stage so that my child will do their homework on their own. It's my job to set that stage. But the ultimate decision about whether they're going to do their homework and do it well and put a lot of effort into it, unfortunately, has to come only from the child. It can't come from a parent forcing it. Hmm, so yeah. we try to set the stage so that the child wants to and feels ready to handle that responsibility, which you can do by, by doing some certain things that I think will make it more likely. Yeah, let's, let's um, talk about that, Karen. How do you set the stage for that? The first thing to do is to get an agreement with your child. Like, you want this to be an inclusive decision. You want them having a say in what homework's going to look like in the family. And I think the best way to do it is to talk to the child about having a routine in place. So kids, you know, they have lots of activities and they're social life, they need some rest. There's all kinds of things that have to happen in those after-school hours. But I think if parents and children sit down together and look at those after-school hours and try to figure out what would be a time where the routine uh, could, could it be focused on you, you doing your homework for the night with the child's input? Because when they have a voice and they feel they're listened to, they're much more likely, you know, to follow through with it. But I think the crucial point is to understand that it is the child's responsibility to put the effort into completing it and that the parent can't cross over that line of responsibility and try and do that for them. That was Mornings with Simi contributor Scott Schantz, and he was speaking with Karen Skinulis, a registered psychotherapist who specializes in parenting. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you may have heard this on the news. The federal government is launching a three-person commission. This is going to happen in the new year. And the focus of the commission is to investigate abuse allegations and human rights violations in Canadian sport. This was announced by the federal sport minister, Carla Qualtro. And Carla Qualtro joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Tell me a little bit more about this. This is the three-person commission. This is to investigate abuse, uh, violations in Canadian sports. What will this commission look like? Well, first of all, thanks for having this important conversation on your show. You know, we are striking a three-person commission um, led by an independent legal expert supported by two special advisors, one in victims' rights and trauma-informed processes and one in sports. Over 18 months, um, they will have engagements across the country to really dig in on um, what's happening in maltreatment and abuse in sport and come up with a series of recommendations to the government on how we can make our system more safe um, and then more broadly on what improvements we need to make to the system to ensure that nothing like this ever happens again. 
There have been some concerns that the commission won't have as as big of a mandate as a public inquiry would have been, an inquiry that could have compelled witnesses to come forward and, and would have had more teeth. Why was the decision made to go with a commission rather than a full inquiry? Well, Jill, there's a couple of really um, important reasons why ultimately we landed on a model that's based after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. First of all, we're dealing with a vulnerable population here who's been traumatized already um, and who, for you know, a system that didn't protect them. So starting from and, you know, building on the work of two parliamentary committees that have dug in on this issue over the past two years and significant media coverage. So we really have a sense of the extent of the problem here. Um, a public inquiry would absolutely um, compel, oh, first of all, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission itself wasn't a public inquiry, especially said this was a voluntary process um, because they didn't want to re-traumatize victims, compel victims to testify, allow for cross-examination of victims. That's something we really want to avoid, and it's kind of antithetical to trauma-informed processes. Um, More practically, a public inquiry at the federal level in an area of primarily uh, provincial jurisdiction like this is would require that we negotiate with the provinces and territories and agree to a terms of reference. That could take over a year, um, and quite frankly, I can't guarantee that the provinces and territories would ultimately agree, so we might end up back at square one. Um, and then finally, you know, we're not, we're not starting from scratch. We, we know what the problem is. We're going to not require people to prove they've been traumatized, they've proved they've been abused, harmed. Um, we, yesterday, were very clear that we're very sorry um, this happened to people, Uh, We believe you, we see you, we want to fix this, and we want to make sport safe for everyone. When you talk about then then how this is going to play out and and getting this information and 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 looking into this, the commission, what what kind of a cost are we looking at, or do you know how much this is going to cost? Um, Similar processes over kind of an eighteen month period. Now, of course, the commission has um, discretion in terms of how many specific meetings or hearings they hold. Um, We're looking at about a 10 to $15 million process, um, but we'll resource this to the extent needed. So if it's more, we'll, we'll, like, this is going to be properly resourced so we can really dig in on this. When you look at some of the allegations and what we've seen, I, I mean, a lot of attention has been paid to the abuses in Hockey Canada, the covering up of those abuses, yep. certainly other sports as well. With your experiences also being an athlete, d- were you surprised by any of this? Or or do you? how did it get to be so bad? How did this go on, do you think, for so long and get to that point that there was so much thought, abuse taking place? Yeah, I, I thought so much about that very point. And, you know, there's two, I think there's, in my kind of assessment, there's two things playing out um, in the, the ecosystem of sport. There are um, egregious, instances of abuse, um, which are horrible, and most of which are criminal. Um, But there's also been this over time normalization of very bad behavior, whether it's intimidation, mockery, bullying, just the things you hear, um, whether it's shouted from fans to, you know, to an athlete or to an official, whether it's coaches in the locker room teasing an athlete or berating them for poor performance, whether it's exclusionary practice or discrimination, like um, there's a lot of homophobia in sport, there's a lot of racism in sport. Um, 
I come from the world of disability sport, so Paralympic sport, and I can tell you, certainly back in the day when I competed, I didn't feel very welcome in sport a lot of the time. Um, it, you know, so one of the outcomes of this commission will be to um, recommend how we can make sport more inclusive and thereby safe for everyone. When you say you didn't feel welcome, how come? Because sport wasn't really designed for someone like me. There, you know, I'm, I'm legally blind. I only have 10% vision. And the system, particularly at the time, although I will, I will give you um, that it has improved significantly on the para-sport para side. It, you know, it, it sport wasn't, they couldn't quite figure out how to deal with a little blind kid from athlete who wanted to play soccer or um, wanted to try curling. And, and just these systems didn't really, they didn't have the flexibility to figure out a way to include me and welcome me all the time. Now, my sport was swimming, and swimming was very welcoming, and I ended up doing very well in swimming, but, but not for everything, right? Um, and there's a lot of kids, whether they're queer or trans or racialized, that don't, don't look at the sport system in BC and across Canada and say, wow, there's a place for me there. And that breaks my heart because sport is so powerful. Like, sport has the potential to do such good and has because there's lots of good things happening in sport in every corner of this country every day and every weekend. Um, so we want access to that kind of sport for everyone. And Minister, go, going back to the, the commission that uh, has been announced, so th there have been some concerns on another body that was brought forward to help with complaints, uh, the Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner. Uh, yeah. Some concerns about this as well, that, that here we are, we're going to have this, this mechanism, we'll find out who the commissioner is, who's going to make up this three-person commission. $15 million or more is going to be spent on this. How can you assure people this is actually going to lead to positive change in sport? So just one quick point on the on OSEC, as we call it, the Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner. Yesterday, I announced as an immediate action that we're going to start to transition OSIC out of where it's currently housed to address the concerns that are being raised around independence for that organization. Um, so, you know, we also announced yesterday a bunch of immediate actions we're taking on striking a ministerial athlete advisory committee. Um, we are doing, creating an international work group for governments around the world to really tackle this collaboratively and share best practices. Um, in terms of guaranteeing that this will not just be another commission report on a shelf, which I think is what you were asking, mm -hmm. is um, we were going to have a preliminary report. Um, it doesn't really give a timeline in the terms of reference. I, I expect around month 10 or 11. Then we're going to hold a national summit to look at those recommendations as a sport community and as a broader uh, Canadian community. So to deliberate, to figure out if, if, if that's the path forward for sport and then ultimately um, the, the final recommendations will come by month 18. Um, I'm committed to implementing uh, those recommendations. I've committed to responding within six months to developing an action plan on how we're going to move forward. Um, but over the next 18 months, we're not taking our foot off the gas. Like there are definitely things we can do in the meantime um, to make sport more safe. We announced six of those things yesterday. And um, for me, this just allows me to focus on the short-term piece and let the commission tackle the systemic piece. Minister, thank you so much for being on the show this morning. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Take care. That is Carla Qualtrough, Canada's Minister of Sport and Physical Activity. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Bill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, the RCMP have now asked for court permission. This is permission to dispose of up to 14,000 pieces of evidence, all evidence that was collected during the investigation into Robert Picton. This was the largest serial killer investigation in Canadian history. And as you can imagine, not everybody is impressed by this move. Joining me in studio now is Dr. Sasha Reed, law student and founder of the Missing and Murdered Database. Dr. Reed, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Also in studio is Sue Brown, Director of Advocacy and Staff Lawyer at Justice for Girls. Sue Brown, thank you as well. Thanks. Uh, who would like to start and talk about, I know that there are a lot of groups that are not pleased with this, saying it's very important to keep this evidence and to not destroy it. Uh, maybe Dr. Reed, could we start with you? Uh, what are your thoughts on this move? My thoughts on this move is it's unconscionable. We've had conversations with several family members, not just a couple, but quite a few family members who, one, were completely unaware of what was happening. They're completely blindsided by this. They're furious, they're upset, they don't want this to go forward. They do not give their permission to have this go forward. They want the investigations of their missing, murdered loved ones to be solved. And they believe there are other people involved in these crimes not just Robert Picton. These are unsolved, open, ongoing investigations. And uh, Sue Brown, I'll bring you in as well. Again, Director of Advocacy, Staff Lawyer at Justice for Girls. Uh, your thoughts on this move? Well, we're seriously concerned and we're left with significant questions as to what exactly the RCMP has been doing with these cases for the past 10 years and why they're seeking for to dispose of these exhibits now. Uh, as far as we're concerned, they have an obligation to thoroughly and adequately investigate unsolved cases, particularly involving marginalized and Indigenous women and girls. Uh, and we expect that they should do everything within their power to investigate these cases thoroughly prior to closing these cases. And their move now to dispose of this evidence, whether it is to return it or whether it is to destroy it or whether to it is to dispose it, that is splitting hairs as far as we're concerned. If they lose chain of custody of this evidence and they don't preserve the evidential integrity of it, they're seriously compromising the potential for other perpetrators who were involved in these missing and murdered cases to be brought to justice. Is that happening though, do you think, in that we know that Robert Picton was convicted in the, the cases that he is now serving a life sentence for, uh, but there were there was other DNA, there certainly were more women murdered, but, but that, and I know that was contentious at the time, uh, doesn't that kind of show that even with all of this evidence still in storage, these are not active investigations? Well, they should be. Uh, I mean, Robert Picton was only convicted of six of those murders. Uh, he, 20 of those charges were stayed, and there were multiple other women who disappeared from the downtown east side who can be connected to Picton or, or, or otherwise unsolved cases. Uh, and it's the RCMP's legal obligation to investigate these cases until they are solved and to leave them open. And just to add on to that, mm -hmm. I think the RCMP presumptively determined that the other suspects were more witnesses rather than co-accused, and they, they spoke to them as though they were witnesses and not co-accused. And I think because there was that preemptive determination that they were not involved, this has never actually been investigated the way it should have been. So when the RCMP come out and say, and, and um, 
one of the spokespersons talked to Post Media News saying that, that these are things like items of clothing that were found in the trailer. Uh, these are not things that have DNA still on them. That, that in, in fact, the quote was, there is no point in keeping this evidence to identify possible additional suspects because police have exhausted all leads to identify any accomplices. Uh, it sounds like, like there's not an agreement there. This has been a significantly flawed investigation from the beginning that led to a very scandalously flawed commission of inquiry. I don't think the families and I don't think the public has the trust in the RCMP at this time to believe what they're saying, that they have exhausted all leads. And that certainly the evidence that we have from the RCMP does not give us faith that they have. The fact that 20 years later, families still have questions and feel that this is unresolved in and of itself means that we need to do more. There has never been sufficient answers in this case. Is it important, though, as well, for some, I know some of this, the items have been given back to the families. If there are items that are deemed not evidence in that, 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 that there's nothing, not that of value, I mean, but of value specifically to an investigation, if police deem that, is it important to get to give those items back and then still keep things that could potentially be evidence? There is a process in the criminal code, which is what the police are pursuing under Section 490, which allows for the disposal of items that don't have any further investigative value. We simply don't believe that the 14,000 exhibits that the RCMP is seeking to dispose of, whether they're returning to the family or otherwise, um, is, is not of investigative value, particularly because the investigation has so been so flawed. And we can also point to the fact that five previous applications have gone forward in court with no notice to the families or no adequate notice to the families such that they knew and meaningfully understood and could participate in those processes. Um, and some of those exhibits included evidence from Burns Road, evidence from Pat Casanova's car, uh, evidence from the Jane Doe Ruskin site, um, and another ex parte application for things perishable. We um, we don't believe that that those pieces of evidence didn't have investigative value. We don't believe what the RCMP are saying. Right, and when you mentioned the Jane Doe uh, the Jane Doe site, that is that not if I'm remembering correctly, is that uh, it's DNA that was found, but has never been the, the pieces have never been connected. The dots have not been connected. That that's still very much an open case. Yes, very right. much. So does it seem strange that there there are even though the RCMP are saying there's no there's no uh, investigative value to keeping these there are cases clearly there is at least one probably more cases that have not been solved. You don't know the investigative value of a piece of evidence until you know it. And you can find that out 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later. And we see that happening in unsolved cases all around the world, all the time. All the time. There's advancements in technology and DNA that allow for uh, DNA to be extracted or, or the evidentiary value of something to come clear, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years after it was retrieved. So... And Sasha, is that something you see as well with your database? Again, you have this comprehensive serial killer database. Is that is that one of the values there as well of that? Those things do change and more evidence does lead uh, to more breakthroughs. Yeah, I, I honestly just believe that you don't know the investigative value of something until you know the investigative value. And that's what we're seeing here. You cannot under any circumstance say there's no investigative value when families have never been question. They've never been asked about it. They've never been told about this. You've never actually had a real investigation into this in the first place. You can't say it has no investigative value. You don't know. So what happens at this point then? This is the RCMP asking for the court's approval to, to give a lot of uh, pieces back, to destroy other pieces. Is there a court challenge? What happens now? 
You want to? Yeah. We are hoping that the RCMP are going to hear our call now and that they're going to withdraw these applications and spare the families from having to go through the devastating process of having the evidentiary value assessed by the court. Um, the families, I think their public statements have made it clear that they are absolutely traumatized and devastated by this last step, at least the families we're in contact with. Uh, should the court applications proceed, uh, I believe the families will be seeking to have their voices heard in court. And, and Sasha, anything you don't want to add to that? No, that's exactly correct. So if we are not able to have a moratorium placed on these disposition applications now, we'll see you in court. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for coming in and talking more about this. I really appreciate your time today. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, that is Dr. Sasha Reed, law student and founder of the Missing and Murdered Database. That's the most comprehensive serial killer database in the world. And Sue Brown, Director of Advocacy and Staff Lawyer at Justice for Girls. Thanks again, to both of you, for coming into studio. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, a big day yesterday in dental care with the unveiling of the federal plan. This is a $13 billion program. It is going to start covering routine dentistry costs and it's going to be rolled out by age. Seniors aged 87 and over will be able to start with their applications later this month. It will then expand to other age groups. And the federal government saying that the staggered application process will make this rollout as smooth as possible as they are expecting millions of Canadians to take part in this. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit more about the program and what it is going to look like is Don Davies, federal health critic. Don with the NDP. Don, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be with you, Jill. A, a pretty big day as far as the dental plan rolling out. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts on, on this staggered approach and what was announced so far? Well, I, I think it's a historic day. You know, what we did yesterday is uh, what's been called the biggest expansion of our public health care system in over half a century. We're going to see 9 million Canadians who don't have dental insurance right now be able to go to the dentist uh, without worrying about the cost. So it's it's got huge public health benefits. Um, and, you know, the other thing I think is important is it's a major affordability benefit, too, uh, at a time when many Canadians are struggling economically. This is going to save people uh, a lot of money by taking dental expenses, you know, off their, uh, out of their budget. Uh, in terms of the staggered approach, Jill, um, Sun Life, uh, who is who won the contract to process the claims, um, can enroll about 500,000 or half a million people per month, and we're expecting about 4.5 million Canadians to be enrolled by May. So uh, that's why we've taken a staggered approach, starting with uh, seniors, the oldest seniors first, and every month uh, through starting next week, and then in January, February, March, and April, seniors are going to be getting letters in the mail, and they're going to be able to enroll by phoning a a number and then punching in some information and then they'll be automatically enrolled and then starting in May we're extending to people with disabilities and children under 18. So we're going to start seeing people go to the dentist as early as May 1st and everybody ought to be enrolled by uh, by June. By June of 2024? 
Yes. And when we look at the incomes and and the fact this is going to be means tested and to be eligible, you have to have the household income below $90,000. Then that has some other parameters uh, for other families. Uh, This is a different approach than the approach we've seen when talking about pharmacare or other health programs. What are your thoughts on the fact that this is something that, that didn't eliminate private insurance and does go with means testing? Well, you're right. I mean, the, the NDP um, has a bedrock principle, believes that all public health services from head to toe should be covered through our public health care system universally. Um, and that's exactly what we're going to continue to work on. Um, we consider this program for dental care, Jill, to be a down payment on that. It's a, it's a really significant first step forward, you know, to have 9 million Canadians covered under a public plan that will be 100% funded by the federal government. So it's a major step step forward, but we, we know there's more work to do, and our, our goal and our dream is to have all dental care eventually covered under our public health care system. Like, like everything else is, you know, it, to us, it doesn't make sense that you break your arm, you go to the hospital, it's fixed through our public health care system, but if you break your tooth, uh, it's, it's handled differently, or, you know, an infection in your ear is handled by the public health care system, an infection in your mouth is not. So there's no rational reason. And, you know, it's interesting in my research on this, uh, dental care was supposed to be part of our public health care system back in the 1960s when we created Medicare. The only reason it wasn't was we didn't have sufficient number of dentists at that time to provide the services. So, um, you know, we're making a really good step forward on this and and we're really happy that a lot of people are going to get their oral health needs met starting uh, in a few months. So would you like to see this then expanded then to go the the route of of getting rid of private insurance that bringing it and bringing it into the fold of public health care? Well, we're not there yet, but as a matter of principle, uh, yes, the NDP has always believed that um, that uh, we should have, should have public health care delivered through our public finance system. Now, it would always be delivered through the private system. You know, all the dentists and denturists and dental hygienists are the p- professionals who deliver the services, and they would still be paid. But when you can streamline administration through the public system um, and pay for it universally, then you can make sure everybody's covered, and you don't have coverage depending on your ability to pay. You have, you have um, quality coverage for everybody, regardless of their ability to pay. And, and that's a core principle of, of the NDP. And it's the, it's the core principle of our Medicare system, which I think most Canadians are really proud of. Right. But when we look at the, the system the way it is now, and if you look specifically at dentistry and people with private insurance are able to access a dentist, and then this program is going to come in and fill those gaps and make sure everybody can access a dentist and get that dental care. Uh, But when you look at at what's happening even here in BC, I mean, we're sending people to the States for cancer care. People are going to the States and paying out of pocket for care that they're not getting here. There are major problems with the system. There aren't problems with the dental system where if you need to go to a dentist and you have private insurance, you can go to a dentist. Yeah, that's true for for people have insurance. But, you know, um, the NDP put this on the national agenda back in 2018. And that was when the CDA, the Canadian Dental Association, put out figures that show that 32% of Canadians, one in three, that's about 13 million Canadians, have no dental insurance at all. And that's a that's an appalling state of affairs um, for a G7 country. And so it wasn't working well for them. 
So what we've done now is is make sure that the people that don't have insurance do have coverage. And we'll see how it works. You know, if, if people are happy with a blended system going years ahead, you know, that's, uh, that's something that certainly can be taken into account. Um, but, you know, what we've focused on now is to focus, uh, is to fix a very serious problem of oral health in Canada. You know, when you have single moms with kids or seniors that can't, and they don't have enough teeth, they can't, you know, bite into an apple or, or, or you know, get fresh vegetables, it affects their nutrition, leads to cardiac problems, diabetes complications, respiratory illness. You know, it leads to serious problems and more expense in our healthcare system. So this is an investment in our healthcare system. And when the NDP put on the national stage, you know, when we first uh, moved it in Parliament, the Liberals and, and the Conservatives voted against it. And we demanded it as part of our confidence and supply agreement. And uh, frankly, disappointingly, the Conservatives voted against it just this week. So um, we believe strongly that everybody should be able to go to the dentist in this country, regardless of the size of your bank account. And, and that's the historical move we've made forward. We'll deal with how we, how we deal with the system comprehensively in the future. But today we celebrate uh, a major accomplishment. Are you confident that there will be enough dentists in that? Will they be able to charge? Because dentists charge different fees for different services. Will there be a cap on fees under this system or will dentists be able to charge what they charge and then Sun Life being the administrator and and the government makes up the difference? No, that's an excellent question. And and from the beginning, I have been a strong proponent to make sure our dental professionals are paid fairly. This is not a poor person's dental care plan. This is a normative dental plan where I want people going to the dentist to be treated just like you or I would be treated under our employer-provided uh, plans. So um, there is a fee schedule. The fee schedule is going to be modeled on an existing federal plan, the Non-Insured Health Benefits Plan, which covers a million Indigenous people. And there, we've also, though... Uh, recognize that those fees have to compensate the professionals um, adequately. And so there's going to be an annual review. So those fees are adjusted every year to make sure that the professionals are being paid properly um, because they're key to the success of this program. Um, And are there enough dentists? Yes, there are enough dentists. I've heard that there may be a shortage in dental assistance. Uh, That's a problem that exists now, by the way. So we're going to have to, I think, focus on getting more human resource professionals in the dental profession, like like we have to do, frankly, Jill, across the whole healthcare system, where we're hearing of shortages of nurses and ultrasound technicians and nurse practitioners and family doctors. So the, that, that challenge affects the dental profession as well, but not so much for dentists themselves. They've told us they have the capacity to, to meet the need. All right. Well, it uh, certainly is a big day and uh, a big announcement when it comes to dental care. Don Davies, we'll leave it there for this morning, but thanks so much for your time. Thanks for yours, Jill. That is Don Davies, a federal critic of health care for the new Democratic Party of Canada. Would love to hear your thoughts on this or anything on your mind this morning. Give me a call on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. You can text that line as well if you would prefer to do that. Or you can always email me, jill at cknw.com.